Today's reading is from the uh, book of 1 Samuel, and we're starting at chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the, of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Anna, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her, lips were, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant fi find favor in your eyes. Then she, went away, then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord." And he worshipped the Lord there. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. 
there is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Bel Elkanah went back, went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar, and it's lovely to, to welcome you this evening and to be uh, turning to look at the book of 1 Samuel together. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that the words that you have written here would, uh, would be living words to us, that we would hear and understand what they mean, that we might live lives trusting in the Lord Jesus, rejoicing in his faithfulness and expectant of your involvement with us. For your glory's sake. Amen. Chap I know um, often tells a story that he was... Uh, going bimbling along in his ordinary life and he chatting to somebody um, in a waiting room just outside a restaurant and didn't realise until afterwards it was Prince William and he'd been completely oblivious. As he says, you know, he's an ordinary person, pretty ordinary life, not the kind of person who regularly bumps into royalty and so he just wasn't expecting it, didn't see it when it happened. So why do I tell you? Because... I'm not sure whether you noticed, but sitting amongst us... No, 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 no. Stop looking around. Don't be ridiculous. The, uh, the reason I tell you is that I think for many of us, especially those of us who call ourselves Christians, we, we're so aware of how ordinary, let's be honest, how ordinary we are. It's not just me. How ordinary we are and how unpromising our lives are that we, we just don't expect God to show up or God to be involved big deal if you miss chatting to the future king of England. I don't know whether he's good conversation, but the God of the universe. How tragic if we are so convinced that there is nothing interesting, worthwhile about us, that we are blind when God is there, when God is at work, when God wants to use you. And that really is what God is going to tell us tonight as we look through 1 Samuel. That he is a God who just loves to work through ordinary people and unpromising 
just bog standard situations. God has a plan for you and he wants you to be ready. Now, as I say, we're, uh, we're launching into the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel in the Bible. Um, so there's a timeline up there. I'm not sure if, um, if you can read the font. It might be a little bit small. So if you're on the far left, at the top, the green lines represent uh, the books of the Bible. And at the bottom, you've got uh, a little timeline uh, with the dates. So 1450 BC, there or thereabouts, the Exodus takes place. And then the Israelites enter the promised land. Little blue dots tell you the, the things. Uh, they conquer the promised land under Joshua. And then the long green line is the book of Judges. A few hundred years. We looked at the book of Ruth, that wonderful story of God's kindness last term. And that takes place during, towards the end, but during the time of the book of Judges. And in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, record what happens uh, just at the end of the book of Judges and as God raises up the first kings in Israel. Now, the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it really is, if you like, one of the best box sets in the Bible. It has absolutely everything. A titanic power struggle for the throne is at its heart. And there are massive battles, brave warriors, terrible acts of betrayal, sex scandals, tragic deaths, heroic friendships. It has absolutely everything. But at its heart, it is about leadership. At its heart, it's about leadership. As we enter the book of 1 Samuel, we enter a leadership crisis. God's people are locked into this miserable spiral of of sin and suffering. In fact, right at the end of the book of Judges, the book that comes before it, the final action is horrific sexual abuse and civil war. And the final verse of the book of Judges explains what's been happening In these words, it says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The book of 1 Samuel is, is if you like, God's answer to that problem. How are his people going to have leadership that will stop them just falling into this miserable, self-harming, wicked spiral of, of shocking abuse and misery? And the book begins with a hint that God's answer is going to come from a very, very unexpected place and that God is going to raise up a king, a ruler, a leader to save his people from the most unpromising of circumstances. Now, the the way the passage works, um, you'll have seen in the reading, we had the action in chapter one and then you get the explanation, the interpretation through Hannah's song or prayer in chapter two. What are we supposed to learn from the strange story? So we'll just work through it like that, the action and then the interpretation. So firstly, it begins with an unpromising situation. Verses 1 to 2, chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Now the story of God raising up his king starts in a very unpromising place, geographically and spiritually. Geographically, it takes place in Ephraim. Now, when Jacob, the the great forefather of the Israelite people, when he was on his deathbed, he prophesied that the king would come from the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, not Ephraim. 
So if you like, as the box set begins and the image of the crown fades away, no one is expecting the camera then to zoom into the hill country of Ephraim. It's like, it's like a documentary on, on the future king beginning with Benefit Street. You think, no, that's not where it's, really? And this family looks especially unpromising if we're searching for a king to lead God's people because Elkanah has, it's not difficult maths, two wives. Happens often in the Old Testament in spite of what God clearly says in Genesis 2. But it never, ever goes well. Whenever we ignore God's pattern for human relationships, always, always there's trouble. And as a hint, I think, of why Elkanah marries two wives, Hannah, whose name means favoured one, has no children. Perhaps that's why he married Penina too, even though it's clear from the passage he's very much in love with Hannah. Now, for all their failings, uh, they are devoted enough to God that once a year they go to Shiloh. There's no Jerusalem temple at this point. So they go to Shiloh where the tents, the tabernacle, where God's ark, where the presence of God symbolically dwells, is to sacrifice. Verse 3, year after year, the man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the sons, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Now, it looks like they've come to offer um, what in Leviticus 7 is called a thanksgiving or a fellowship offering. The point was, you, uh, as an act of thankfulness to all, to, for all that God has provided, you offer back some to him, and some is burned up, and then some is eaten. You have a, a meal celebrating your relationship with God, that this is the God who's provided, who is in relationship with you. Celebrate with a meal in the presence of God. And that's what's going on here. But even this annual act of devotion is ruined by sin. Verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? It isn't hard to imagine. I mean, Penina is unlikely to have been blind to the fact that Elkanah loves Hannah more. I mean, he gives Hannah twice the portion he gets to Elkanah. Very easy to imagine how that would turn to needling jibes, even in worship. Oh gosh, that's a big portion, Hannah. You sure you can finish that on your own? I mean, one of my children would be happy to help you if you get too full. I mean, gosh, I barely have enough to feed them all. I mean, just can't seem to stop them popping out. There's more every year. I lose count, so I never quite have enough for them. So we're very happy to help you, Hannah. Now, Elkanah may love Hannah, but you don't have to have too much emotional intelligence to wince at his attempt to comfort his wife in verse 8. Who cares if you haven't got children? You have me. I mean, it, and actually, it is particularly tone deaf if the hint is right that the reason he married Penina is because Hannah wasn't enough for him without children. Anyway, it's a very unpromising situation. That is, unless you're familiar with the history of the Bible. 
It's God's great promise that drives the history of humanity. Just after Adam and Eve have ruined the world by bringing sin and death in, God promises that he will raise a seed, an offspring, a child born through the line of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent, who will destroy evil. And so often, God chooses to take forward the promise right at the point that human hope for a child has been extinguished. So childless Sarah becomes well, becomes the, the mother of Isaac, the forefather of the Israelite people. Childless Rachel becomes the mother of Joseph, who will save the people of Israel from the famine. Childless Manoah and his wife become the parents of Samson, who will save the Israelites when they're being oppressed and destroyed by the Philistine army. The truth is, nothing in the Bible is quite so promising as when a situation looks, humanly speaking, unpromising. Because that's where God so often steps in. An unpromising situation, and then an anguished prayer and a blind priest. Now, one particular time, it seems that Penina's goading and just the aching void of childlessness has just become too much. And Hannah breaks down at the entrance to the tent of the Lord, sobbing and praying. Once when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now three things I want us to notice here. First, what a privilege that Hannah can pray to the Lord God Almighty in verse 11. Knowing that he sees the misery of one, humanly speaking, insignificant little woman. But God sees. Now, in these days when we do most of our shopping online, it's an enormous convenience. Until, of course, there's an issue, at which point it becomes an aching inconvenience because you can never get through to the department that's responsible for the issue. Instead, you have to speak to the customer complaints department. Three words that bring terror, hopelessness, fear, dread. Munch's scream appears on your face as soon as you, you try to get in touch with the customer complaints department. Because for a start, you only ever get automated replies. You know, you type in, uh, the order never arrived. And are you saying you want to order another 25? No, I'm not. I'm saying I haven't got anything. And, and when you do finally, after three or four weeks, get through, you have an inane discussion with somebody who knows nothing and doesn't understand and seems never to have even heard of the company. And then within seconds, you're bombarded with customer satisfaction surveys. But look at what's happening here. Hannah can go straight to God. Actually, it's it's very interesting. Do you notice back in verses five to six how the, the author stressed that God is responsible for Hannah's childlessness? Verse five, second half of verse five, the Lord had closed her womb. Verse six, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. So when we pray to God, we pray, Hannah prays to the one who is ultimately responsible for all the details of her life. Now, that brings its own questions and its own struggles. 
But it does mean that, like Hannah, when we pour out our souls in prayer, we're not going to the customer complaints department. Instead, the global CEO has given us his personal mobile number and said, call me day or night, anytime. I'm here to listen. 1 Peter 5, 7, we're told, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. Now, the second thing I think you notice about this prayer is that it does sound, doesn't it, like Hannah's trying to bribe God. Look, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Like she's thinking, if I can find something God wants, then he'll give me what I want. It's, it's a barter rather than a prayer, isn't it? I don't actually think that's what's happening. Well, firstly, because it can't be, because, well, she has nothing to offer God anyway. I mean, seriously, everything that she has, everything that you have, everything I have, comes from God. The money in our pockets, the bodies we might use to serve him, all of them belong to God. So we, to barter with him is basically to borrow from him, to negotiate with him. It just doesn't work. Actually, I think the context helps us as we try to work out what's going on. The family have come for their annual Thanksgiving sacrifice, where they celebrate everything they have as a gift from God. And the way they celebrate that is by giving some of it back to God in praise and thankfulness. And that's what Hannah's doing here. She's saying, God, this is what I will do as my act, my vow of thankfulness. Please give me a child and I will devote him to you. It's a vow of thanksgiving. Now, the third thing to see here, we'll see the full ugly truth next week, but the next verses, they do start to hint to us that all is not well with the leadership of God's people. Look at verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. And said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, oh, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Something is profoundly wrong when the leader of God's people cannot tell the difference between earnest prayer and drunken slurring. Something is seriously, seriously amiss when he is so used to seeing people staggering, stumbling, slurring around drunk, around the tent of God, that that's just what he assumes must have been happening. And we'll see next week, that's exactly what's been going on. But the chapter finishes on a much warmer note. God does what he, uh, what she has asked, and Hannah does what she has promised. Verse 19, Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. The name Samuel sounds a little bit like the Hebrew, I asked. Interestingly, the Hebrew I asked is exactly the word Saul. And that's pun will drive the narrative for the next few chapters as we'll see. 
Now, I have to say, I read this section here and, and see what happens next, that, that Hannah does exactly this. She takes him, verse 24, after he was weaned, so maybe three, four years old, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with three-year-old bull and ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. She sacrifices and says to Eli, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here before you praying. I prayed for this child. The Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. Was Hannah not sorely tempted to keep Samuel at home? I mean, who would know? (laughs) I mean, it'd be so easy as well to rationalize things. Look, it was just a rash vow. I was hormonal and depressed. God would never want to hold me to something I said when I was just in that kind of state. And besides, God designed the family. That's the best place for a child to grow up. And, and Sammy can serve God here just as well as he can over at the tent in Shiloh. No. She made a vow, so she keeps it. Ecclesiastes 5.4 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Now, I think no character in this whole section is quite so much like God as Hannah is at this point, as she gives up her son, her only dearly loved son, just as she has promised. Okay, so it is a lovely story with some intriguing hints of what's going to happen next, but what on earth do we make of it all? Well, this is where Hannah's song or prayer in chapter 2 comes in. It interprets the action, but it does more than just that. See, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are bookended by, by songs. Hannah's song at the beginning and then David's song right at the end. And Hannah's song doesn't just explain what's happened in chapter 1. It actually drives the narrative for the rest of the book. The book is a, a tracing out of all that she says in chapter 2. Those words being fulfilled in the history of God's people. And as we look forward, it'll tell us how God will use this unpromising beginning. Uh, Firstly, she thinks about the character of God. God raised me up when I was lowly. Verse 1, then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn, my strength that is, is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah knows only God could be responsible for this reversal in her fortunes. So she praises him. She has learned, verse 2, that he delivered her from the taunts of her enemy. And there is no God but him. I wonder if you've worked that out yet. Many of us are still slightly hedging our bets on this. We don't wholeheartedly commit ourselves to Jesus because we're not really sure that he is God over everything. But Hannah discovered he alone is Lord. Children, careers, relationships, health. He's the only God. All these things are in his hands. Now, the key to the song is the the, the longer middle section, verses 3 to 8, where Hannah celebrates God wasn't acting out of character when he reversed her fortunes. God humbles the proud and raises up the lowly. 
you'll see uh, the, the song moves from God did this thing to God does this kind of thing, from the specific to the general. In other words, she says, look, God is always at work humbling the proud and raising up the lowly. That's just what he does. Verse 3, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak with such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He raises up the poor from the dust. Uh, he humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On him he has set the world. The history of God's people is the humbling of the rich and the powerful and the raising up of the poor and the miserable. His great plan of salvation comes about mainly through childless women and younger brothers. He chooses as his people a stiff-necked slave nation. Key to his purposes is a pagan sex worker. All the time, God chooses the least promising those who the world despises and calls them cowards. Even people who are running away from God prove central to his purposes. The end of verse 8 tells us why he can do this. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. If God has the power to pick up the world and put it figuratively on its foundations, he can pick up a human from obscurity and put them on a throne. He has all the power to do that. And this uh, mention of princes and thrones leads to the final verse. God will exalt his anointed king. For he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now that is an astonishing statement. There is no monarchy in Israel at this point. There is no grassroots political campaign for a king. There is no great movement to enthrone anybody. But God's spirit moves Hannah. And as she praises God, she prophesies that he is going to raise up an anointed king for his people. And not just to reign over Israel, but to rule over the ends of the earth. The God who humbles the proud and raises up the lowly will raise up a king. Someone who will lead and protect his people. And they will come from somewhere as unpromising and as unexpected as Hannah is. And indeed, her very unexpected son will play a key role in the enthronement of this king. But of course, Hannah's words point beyond the near future and the great King David, who her son Samuel will anoint. They've got a greater meaning and point to a much greater king, Jesus. You can, um, you can think of it this way. Uh, this prophecy of Hannah's is like a check. You remember those checks? Am I speaking a foreign language to yeah, 
vaguely. You know what they are. You've seen them on charity things. Check. Um, a check with a, a check for a huge amount of money in a foreign currency. So you're not quite sure how much it's worth. You're like, mm, it looks like a lot of money, but I don't really know. And the check is cashed in when King David is anointed by Samuel and placed on the throne by Almighty God. That's when the check is cashed in. God has written this check promising leadership and it's cashed in. But here's the thing. David's on the throne and you look at the bank balance and realize, oh my goodness, most of the money's still there. Clearly this promise, this check is worth far, far, far more than we realized. Worth much more than we ever found just in King David. Something more is to come. And Hannah's prayer finds its ultimate fulfillment. God cashes out his promise in full hundreds of years later when another woman praises God for an even more unlikely birth and prays with very similar themes. As Mary praises God in awe and wonder, she's going to give birth to the true anointed king, great David's greater son. She says words that echo Hannah's song. Luke 1 He has scattered those who are proud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And that word anointed at the end of Hannah's song, verse 10. Well, it's the word Messiah. And so as we go through 1 Samuel and learn about leadership and kings, all of it is pointing ultimately to the one to come, King Jesus, the anointed one raised from lowly beginnings who will rule over the ends of the earth. Okay, wonderful. But when your alarm goes off in not so many hours' time, what on earth is the cash value of all of this to you? What's the relevance? Well, you can summarize it with the, with the odd statement there at the bottom, God has an M.O., you know, cop shows talk about criminals having an MO. It's from the Latin modus operandi, which I believe is a gerund. And it means a way of working, a way of working, modus operandi, MO. The point is, you can tell a crime has been committed by a particular criminal because it has all their hallmarks, their MO was used. So Charlie the cat burglar, he's always breaking into first floor windows in Fulham just before dawn. So when that happens in Fulham, you think it was Charlie. And if you want to catch Charlie at work, you don't go to a bungalow in Beckenham at midday because that's not Charlie's MO. If you want to catch God at work, you need to know what his MO is. Now, we've got to be careful here. Uh, Theologians call it typology, by the way, Um, just God's MO. He has patterns that he works out through history. And so you know the kind of things God will do. Now, there is no promise that all our anguished longings, like Hannah's longing for this child, will be answered. There's no promise. If only we can learn to pray the way she prayed. But the relevance is in those two statements. Because God has an MO, you can expect his kingdom to grow in unpromising places. You don't look for Charlie the cat burglar in a bungalow. Don't look for the God of the Bible in the headline news. Don't expect to see his kingdom grow through presidents and sports stars and global influencers. Tomorrow morning as you get up, 
expect God's kingdom to grow in unpromising places. Now, the church in the wealthy West is dominated by scandals and squabbles and stories of decline at the moment. But it should be no surprise to us that in North Korea, amidst that horrific persecution, the kingdom of God is growing and people are turning to follow Jesus. It should be no surprise, given God's MO, that the fastest growing church, from what we can tell, in the world is in Iran, where there is terrible suffering to come for those who turn to follow Jesus. And ministers can expect to be imprisoned if they're caught. It should be no surprise to us that in spite of the the headlines telling us all about the the resurgent spread of uh, militant Islam, more Muslims, according to most missionaries, have become Christians in the last 30 years than the previous three, 500 years. Don't be surprised. God's MO. He always shows up in unpromising places and works through ordinary people. So the great hope for your friends becoming convinced about Jesus is not some high profile becoming a celebrity, becoming a Christian and using their platform. God doesn't need big, impressive churches and famous speakers. God loves to work through ordinary, unheralded men and women who speak about Jesus with slightly stumbling words and nervous hearts. That means our church. That means your family your friends. So as you wake up tomorrow, remember that God's MO is to grow his kingdom through people like you. As you speak about Jesus, as you serve Jesus, as you invite friends to honest questions. We can go further. (laughs) Expect his involvement in your life. It's so easy to think that God could have no real interest or involvement in my life. Too stained by previous sinful compromises and and hampered by struggles and difficulties and doubts. And so I convinced myself God could never really be interested in me or be really that involved in what I'm up to. And so we just kind of live low-grade lives, not expecting God to be involved. But the God who used Hannah loves just loves to work through ordinary people with very unpromising circumstances. That's his MO. So live, wake up tomorrow with a prayerful expectance that God is involved in your life. Stop waiting for things to be straightened out in life. Get on with trusting and serving God right now where you are. Stop thinking that if I had this or that gift, I might really be of use to God. No, God has all the strength and might he needs. He doesn't need our help. Wake up tomorrow expecting there to be opportunities to serve Jesus and confident that God loves to use people like you and he is involved. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this beautiful story, for your kindness and your compassion on this, uh, this faithful woman, Hannah. And we praise you for all it tells us of the God that you are, a God who loves to raise up the lowly, and a God whose pattern of work in history, it reached its climax as the Lord Jesus came down 
And as the Lord Jesus, from humble beginnings, was raised up to rule. But thank you that that pattern carries on through him to his people. And so we pray that we would trust you're involved in us and through us. Help us to be excited. Help us to be confident. And help us to be willing to offer ourselves to you tomorrow. For your glory we pray. Amen.